Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into this Siberian Unknown Part 2? Part 2. I'm Cynthia. And I am Stephanie. You have found the Dark Oak. As we have alluded to, this is part two of Diatlov Pass. And man, part one is chalked of so much good stuff. If you have not listened to part one, please go and do so. Because otherwise, a lot of what I'm going to talk about in part two won't make any sense. And genuinely, you just don't want to miss it. It's amazing. You, you, I can tell you that like I heard more in that part one episode. I th- Things I've never heard about this case. And I've listened to so much on this case. So... You did a great job on part one. I can't wait to hear what you have in store for us today. Oh, that makes me very happy. Yes. <laughs> and I want to give credit where credit's due. Of course, I've done a super deep dive on this, but uh, a lot of information I got from the book, The Dead Mountain, um, and also from an unknown compelling force documentary. Um, yeah, so much good stuff out there, but some of these documentarians are out there doing the work and I'm so appreciative. So now I can learn so much more about these hikers and, well, try to figure out what happened to them. Yes. Yeah. So where we left off, we had two uh, friends and co-eds of the hikers that had created a search party, and two of them had separated off and wound up finding the tent that belonged to the hikers. The hikers were nowhere to be seen. Um, The tent poles were still standing erect. But the tarpaulin had given away to some snow and ice. But when they went in, nothing seemed disturbed. It was almost like the hikers had just stepped out. Now, were the sleeping bags like rolled up or were the sleeping bags like left out like they'd been sleeping? Well, no, it was almost like they had just set camp. Okay. So they were in their evening routine is what one would think. Gotcha. So as in either the hikers had just stepped out to go relieve themselves or they had stepped out to gather firewood but everything was and you know they these hikers had been on this hike for a while and this was day five and they really had everything down pat at this point um everyone had a task as i was talking about and they even talked about when they were setting up the tent there were certain of the men that were responsible for the post and the poles and the zippers and hooks. And when they got to a certain point, the girls would go in the tent first and they would actually arrange the sleeping bags and the jackets and the blankets so that everybody else could then come in the tent. Okay. So everyone had their own job. And again, a lot of the outerwear would be put around the periphery of the tent just to help with extra insulation. And as we talked about several times in part one, these these folks were really following, I mean, hiking 101. They were doing everything to a T and they were doing everything that they should have done. And judging by the fact of how well organized and efficient the tent was, they were doing just that. Okay. Okay. So when the friends find this campsite and find it not really in disarray, 
they they actually are hopeful. Um, the first thing they think, even though these hikers been missing a little over a week, they knew of how skillful they were. They knew of the knowledge that they had. And again, they they saw the tent as a sign of hope. Sure. It didn't look like they had run into trouble, at least here. At that point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. After discovering the tent was empty, the two men quickly surveyed the surrounding area, only to find that a snowstorm um, was quickly approaching. So, so disappointed. Sure. I mean, we talked good. about how the search party was really difficult from the beginning. Different different search crews communicating with each other, aerial crews communicating with ground crews. And so here they are. They're like, we finally found the tent. We want to go out and try to find them. But now there's a storm coming. Okay. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So they're not able to do so. However, Slobstov flags down the single radio operator that they have on the mountain that has the one radio that actually works. And they radio, they send a radiogram back down to Ivdel, where the investigators are located. So that's kind of like their base that Mm -hmm. they're working out of. And he tells them that they've found the campsite. Immediately after that, Slobstov receives a message back that says, prepare a helicopter landing area and a campsite for 50 people. Okay. So So they're sending in reinforcements. We're close. And a helicopter pad was, this is a side note, Mm -hmm. they had to find a relatively uh, level patch of ground and then they had to like throw water on it to make it like freeze like flat for the hell. So this was no like easy (laughs) task here. Because we're in the Siberian forest on the side of a mountain. So finding a flat space with no trees kind of difficult sure kind of difficult but whatever it was so many people again 50 people like we're coming we're gonna come find these hikers exactly exactly the next day again droves of searchers descend upon the scene unfortunately though there was no specific lead investigator Mm. on the mountain so all of these very eager searchers it was kind of chaotic Mm -hmm. and possibly even damaging Mm -hmm. um, because they wind up going through the tent. They wind up kind of rifling through things, trying to find clues as to how to find them. And again, you're thinking about these are literally college students trying to find their friends. So they're not thinking about preserving a scene. Of course. They're just thinking we need to find our friends. Right. So I don't know that any significant data was lost because they wound up recovering all the items. It just was a little disappointing that this kind of got off to a rough start. Mm Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, even with the chaos, about midday, searchers found an indentation in the snow that seems to be a mess, seems to be a little off. Beneath a large cedar tree, they noticed charred cedar boughs partially buried by snow. It appears to be the remnants of a fire pit. Okay. So this is a a real clue. All right. After excavating the site, they find not one body but two. Oh no. Which must have been extremely disappointing. Absolutely. Because th- this is your first sign. I mean, if they didn't survive, that probably the rest of the hikers did not either. The two men were laying side by side. They were not wearing jackets or pants. One wore a checkered shirt and a pair of swim trunks under long underwear. Only the right leg of the underwear remains with the other leg torn away. His feet were bare, with snow wedged between his toes. The other body is slightly more covered in an undershirt, a checkered shirt, long underwear, briefs, and socks. But the clothes on both bodies are brutally shredded, with pieces missing, leaving much of their discolored skin exposed. 
one lie face down in the snow, his arms folded under his head like a pillow. There are broken cedar branches lying beneath him. The other lies on his back, his face upturned. His mouth and eyes have been taken by an animal, most likely a bird. Yuri Doroshenko and Georgi Kravonashenko have been found. Oh, man. I know. Breaks my heart, really. Closer inspection, including observation of abrasions to the forearms, legs, and torso, suggested that Doroshenko had tried to climb the tree. Whether it was to get a better vantage point or to escape something is unknown. But he appeared to have been in the tree and then have fallen from it. Georgie was found to have a bit of flesh from the back of his hand in his teeth. Okay, so I heard somebody had flesh in their teeth, and I always thought maybe that was like one of those little things that kind of gets like blown out of proportion. No, that's so for that real. because I know everything you're telling us today has been verified. Like mm-hmm. you're telling us facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, and it shows he had bitten the back of his hand. Now, if you think about reasons he might have done that. He possibly bit his frozen hand to rejuvenate it. Maybe he was trying to make a fire and his hands were freezing. So you think you're trying to like cause trauma to like reinvigorate yourself? Okay. Or possibly he did it to maybe stifle a scream. Oh, no, that's worse. That's worse. Yeah, because if you think about and it may have been a shriek from pain, it may have been a shriek of terror, whatever it was. If you think about it, if you're trying to stop yourself from making noise, you might try to bite the back of your hand. Oh, okay. Yeah. Doroshenko was found to have been repositioned after his death. Experts found particles of moss and pine needles in his hair, and also that his hair had been burnt on the right side of his head. Was his head laying near the fire pit? We definitely know there was a fire. Okay. So that would be the thought. Mm -hmm. Later that morning, a Monzi shirts team noticed one of their dogs pulling towards some unnaturally growing birch branches. The two men fall to their knees and begin shoveling snow. It takes only a few handfuls before they find dark clothing and then a wool-covered elbow. It is a man. He wears a sweater pulled over a checkered shirt plus a fur vest and ski trousers. Like its companions, though, he's not wearing a hat or gloves. Nor is he wearing shoes, only mismatched socks. The man's arms are crossed over his chest in a defensive posture, clinging to the young birch tree as if fighting for life until his last moments. As the snow is carefully removed from his upturned face, it is unmistakable. It is the hiking party's leader, Igor Dyatlov. Mm. Of the pictures that I have seen, This one makes me very emotional. Really? Yeah, of him clinging to the tree. Because I know he must have felt so much responsibility in Mm. those final moments. At least what I know of him, I think he would have felt very responsible. Well, sure, he's the leader of these. And a very responsible, caring person. Right. And so this, this one really gets to me. Oh, man. Yeah. Searchers were called to the place of Dyatlov's fallen body to continue the search. This time, it was a police dog that signaled tragedy. When the dog starts to dig, her trainer joins in. Together, they unearth a small frame, a woman. She lies on her right side, face down, arms twisted beneath her. Her face is dark with blood, 
and her right leg is bent as if she had been in mid-climb before collapsing. Unlike the first hikers, however, she is the first to be dressed sensibly for the weather. She wears a hat, ski jacket, and ski pants. Yet, like the others, she is mysteriously without shoes. Which, again, I mean, anytime you're in snow, you want to be wearing clothes. But this is Siberia. Literally Siberia. Like, and 25 degrees below zero that night. Right. So to not be wearing shoes is literally like yeah. that, that you just would not, would not do that. Yes. I would assume that you'd even sleep in your shoes. I mean, I know nothing about camping in Siberia, but like. Well, some more that I found out about that. Um, they have essentially felt booties that are a liner for their boots. So okay. they would want to leave out their boots. They actually would leave their boots not on once they had retired, like once they had, were officially in the tent. They would leave their boots out to dry because you don't want any moisture in your boots. All right, that makes sense. And they would leave on these felt booties. So kind of they're like really okay. thick socks. So they're extra okay. insulation. And these felt booties would also be ones like if you had to go out and go to the bathroom or something, you would just keep your booties on. You wouldn't put okay. your full boots on. So is this what they were wearing when they were found? Uh the hikers we have talked about thus far were not. Okay. They were either barefoot or just had on socks. Okay. So they didn't even have... They didn't even have booties on. The booties. Okay. So again... Very strange. So you wouldn't even take your booties... So you would wear your booties all the time unless you're changing them or something yeah. like that. So for them to not be wearing, like... They would not... There, there are no circumstances that I have read about or anybody came up with that they would leave the tent voluntarily wearing what they were wearing that is so weird okay no circumstances okay um again you would put on some outerwear and you would have on at least these booties if you're going outside so sure. the fact that some of them were literally barefoot uh unheard of nobody can no explain yeah. yeah yeah and again no hat no gloves this is definitely you're asking for frostbite but very easily a death sentence turns very, very bizarre right very bizarre right so this female body that they had found, again, no shoes. Her feet are covered only in socks. Xena uh, is now accounted for. Mm. Very sad. Early theories start to surface now because now they're finding, okay, this is a recovery mission, not a rescue mission. And they're already starting to think, what on earth happened here? So radiograms start to go back to Ivdel about, was this an avalanche? Were these high winds? What's the was maybe the hikers were swept away in these high winds or something like that. But then why is the tent still standing? Right. If you an avalanche or these super high winds, how are, are literally the hikers spread all over the mountain, but the poles are still standing for the tent? Right. That makes no sense. It didn't make much sense. But you're out there, you're thinking, well, these would be common things that would that could decimate a hiking party. Okay. So those were the first the first theories that came out. The sun set that day with no more bodies found and no more answers to quickly budding questions. By evening, though, a significant move in the case was made. Lev Ivanov was appointed as the lead prosecutor for the Dyatlov case, something that would change the course of this case and his life forever. He plays a very key role in a lot of the mystery in this oh, case. Okay, I'm intrigued. Ivanov immediately begins investigating possible theories. Um, some other things that came up were, could someone from the Monty tribe be responsible for the deaths of the hikers? Because they're the only locals known in the area. 
could they have, you know, contributed to their demise? So Ivanov goes to the Monzi and starts just kind of asking around, like, is this something that could have happened? Do you have anybody in your tribe that's a little a little off? Sure. That um that maybe has mentioned being angry at hikers venturing into your area, that has maybe, you know, somehow desecrated a sacred landmark of some kind. And the Monzi have no idea. They're like, that's not something that we would do. However, they start reporting that they have seen what they refer to as strange balls of orange flame in the days around the time of the Dyatlov incident. So kind of mid-February, early to mid-February, they report seeing, again, orange balls of flame in the sky. Okay. Unexplained orange balls or orange orbs is what I've seen they're referred to as. But of course, this sounds bizarre. So Ivanov just kind of writes it off and says, well, maybe it was a meteor shower. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was something just natural. And it just happens to coincide with this accident. And so it's, you know, it's noted. Okay. Several days later, the body of rustic Slobodin is found. He is lying face down with his right leg bent beneath him and his right fist pulled to his chest. He is in a checkered shirt, sweater, ski trousers, several pairs of socks, and a single felt shoe. So the booty. The booty. That would go in the boot. Exactly. He also wears a ski cap, which is still on his head. This would be strange if they had been blown down the mountain because of an avalanche or wind. The cap would probably still not be on his head. Okay. So it's notable that it was still attached to his head. Because they're looking at, okay, maybe it was an avalanche, but wait a minute, this doesn't add up. It does In addition to the tent, not adding up. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. Rustic is midway between Dyatlov and Xena. He is oriented toward the tent as if he was walking towards it at the time of his collapse. There is also a small hollow of encrusted snow near Rustic's nose and mouth where his breath had melted the surrounding snow, suggesting that Rustic had been alive for some time after he fell. Oh, that's, I don't know why that's so sad, but that's like really sad. Yeah. That he's just laying there breathing. Okay. Yeah. What's most startling is the front of Rustic's head, which is deeply discolored, as if he sustained a blood force trauma to the head. Okay. So an injury. Sure. Strange. Forensic examinations of Igor Zina, Georgi Doroshenko, and Rustic performed in Evedale conclude, unsurprisingly, that the hikers died of hypothermia. So they died because of the elements. Because of the elements. Not injuries. No. Okay. Just because of hypothermia. Okay. And and everybody kind of assumed that at first, you know. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. But it doesn't make sense that numerous. So the deal is they died from hypothermia. But why were they out in the elements to start with? Yeah, that's the part. That's the question. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense why they would have died. Right. With weather unfortunately worsening on the mountain, additional searches to find the missing four hikers had to be suspended. Oh, man. That stinks. With little clothes to go on, attention turns towards the tent. It was at this time that investigators found a deliberate knife cut in the side of the tent opposite the door. It was not the cut of an ice axe, but more precise. The size of the cut was just barely large enough for someone to pass through. 
Curious as to what this might be, the tent was passed on to criminal expert and scientific officer G. Turkina. She concluded that the opening was absolutely a cut and not a tear. The most shocking news of all came after a microscopic examination of the cut fibers revealed that the cut had come from inside the tent. That is so weird. To me, it's just the most shiver-inducing part of this story. Cut a hole in the tent from the inside just big enough to crawl out of. Yuri Yudin at this time also took time away from his studies to fly to Yvtel to help identify his friend's personal effects. Oh. Since he was the one closest to them and knew all of their items, I just hate that he had to be asked to do it. I hate I hate all of this for him. Um, and especially knowing the way he's described, like his personality, I can just imagine this just ruining him. Sure. Like, what a terrible... I mean, just... He should... Should have been there. I mean, he probably is feeling all different kinds of things because, like, relief that he wasn't there and guilt that he wasn't. Just all of it. Yeah, all the things. Now, he had quite the task because as items from the tent were transported back to Ivdel, they were haphazardly placed into bags and backpacks. They just kind of hurriedly picked everything up, scooped everything up, and then put them in a plane back to Ivdel. Or a helicopter. I'm sorry, a helicopter back to Ivdel. So his task solemn task, I might add, was to literally untangle all of their items and put them in nine piles. Oh, ooh, I, I don't know why that is so morbid, but that's it's really awful. morbid. It's really orbit. Orbit. Morbid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the guilt and grief were almost too much for him. Oh, of course. Yeah, he reported this was very, very difficult. However, he remembers Ivanov, remember the lead investigator, being very kind to him. And reminding him that if you were with them, it would have been 10. I don't know that that would have made me feel better or worse, but it made him feel better. You know, hearing you say it, I kind of got a little chill because I was like, I mean, it's less of a tragedy because there was only nine. It's a tragedy, but it would have been a bigger tragedy. Yes. It would have been another family, more people affected. So... I can see the beauty in that idea. Yeah. Now, this day got even worse for him because after this grueling task was done, he had to fly in a helicopter back to Sverdlovsky with a woman that was transporting his friend's organs. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. They were going back to Sverdlovsky to to do more examination on the organs. And they only have so much transportation, so they both happen to get on the same helicopter. And so he sat there awkwardly, knowing that parts of his friends were on the helicopter. That's rough. Yeah, that's rough. Really rough. The month of March also brought a peculiar development. The families of the deceased hikers had been unsuccessful in retrieving the bodies of their loved ones in order to give them a proper burial. Investigators instead suggested that the bodies of the fallen hikers should stay in the mountains. It was as if they wanted no funeral to occur. The bodies would be buried and forgotten. Families of the hiker would hear none of it. I mean, they're like, uh, get out of here. I want my son or my daughter. And soon public outcry pushed the hands of investigators to allow the return of the bodies to Svertlowski for a funeral. They finally agreed under the condition that the funeral for the five hikers not be a single event, 
but be split up into multiple parts as to minimize the turnout for the funeral. In Yuri Yudin's own words, they wanted to pretend that nothing happened. Hmm. That's weird. Strange. Right. Because it's not like hiking, especially this hike, is a it's a dangerous sport. They knew they went in knowing there was a risk. So it's not like anybody did anything wrong. Why are they trying to hide it? Well, and Unless, this is where a lot of the theories of some government cover up, some military cover up really comes into play. And you see why it happened. I, I mean, because this is very strange. Yeah, this is. I mean, obviously, the way they're found would brings up a lot of questions. Right, but again, the military helps find them. You know, but but now you what don't, do you mean? I can't have them back to give them a burial in their hometown. Right. Yeah. That strange. And why? You know. And again, Soviet Russia. So they don't really get a lot of choice in the matter. But they dictated how the funerals would run. They did not want any large public display. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That would, as a mother of one of these hikers, I would be losing my mind. But what can you do? Right, which makes it even worse that, like, yeah, you can't do anything. Oh, that's yeah. awful. Okay. Meanwhile, investigators began to comb through the hikers' categorized belongings. The final frame in Georgie's camera revealed an interesting clue. Though most of the frame is black, there is an indistinct light source that overtakes the majority of the left side of the frame. While this could be explained as some type of, type of lens flare, the smear of light seems to move up and out of the frame, perplexing investigators and, to that point, baffling the world for over 50 years. This is another very interesting photo, and I think you've seen this one. I have seen this photo. And, um, yeah, it's just weird. It's, Where is this light coming from? Yeah. It, and it's obviously strange. they were able to be like, okay, it's not a flashlight. It's like they ruled out all the obvious things that it could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with information about the photo starting to leak to the public, more reports about these orange balls of light originally mentioned by the Monzi start to surface. Hmm. On February 17th, a reputable hiking group near Mount O'Torton area witnessed what they called fire orbs in the sky. So this is a hiking group very similar to the Dyatlov Pass group. They were again trying to get their certification and they also said, yes, we saw them. They were in the sky. The theory was somehow these orbs might be related to their disappearance, but there was no information about were these orbs something natural? Were they supernatural? Were they man-made, like some kind of missile or rocket? Or were they a UFO? Or again, maybe a meteorite, comet, something like that. Upon hearing a lot of about a lot of these sightings of the fire orbs, the families start asking this theory to be explored further. Ivanov agreed and started exploring the theory. Then, in mid-March, he was called away to Moscow for reasons that he would not disclose to his office. Upon his return, he flatly refused to discuss any mention of murder or spheres in relation to this case. Ivanov would reveal in a 1990 letter to a local newspaper that during the Cold War, quote, such topics were prohibited in order to prevent the slightest possibility of disclosing data on missile and nuclear techniques, end quote. If Ivanov had thought these theories held water, 
he put them aside for the good of his country. Wow. Further leading to some kind of government cover-up, conspiracy. What's that about? It's scary is what it is. It's scary is what it is. I agree with that. With immediate theories as to the cause of death of the hikers grinding to a halt, many hope the discovery of the remaining four hikers will yield clues. Two months into the search, on May 3rd, a Monzi searcher comes across some unusual branches just under the snow in a ravine near the cedar tree where Doroshenko and Kravonashenko had been found. The branches appeared to have been cut by a knife. Volunteers began to dig into a cavity that would eventually read eight feet deep in an area of 100 square feet. This is a very large area that they were excavating. Later that day, they discovered a collection of clothes lying abandoned in the snow. Stranger still, some of the clothing looked like it had been cut or shredded. There is a crumpled gray Chinese woolen sweater turned inside out, cotton trousers, a brown woolen sweater with lilac thread, a right trouser leg, and a bandage one yard long. The second day of excavation reveals more clothing. Black cotton sports trousers with a right leg missing, presumably the other half from the previous day's trousers. Okay. And a half of a woman's sweater sweater belonging to uh, Leuda. Okay. The but ex- we haven't found her yet. No, that's okay. correct. She's still amongst the missing hikers. The excavation had led searchers further into the creek bed, and the conditions are now snow and slush. On the second evening, a body is found. It is clearly a man, but the decomposition from the water is such that the face is unrecognizable. According to the Dead Mountain author, he is wearing a gray sweater and, strangely, two wristwatches. The men continue to dig and soon discover three more bodies lying nearby, but Layuda is the only identifiable one of the four. She is dressed in a cap, a yellow undershirt, two sweaters, brown ski trousers, and two socks on one foot. The other foot is wrapped in a torn sweater. Her head is pointed upstream while the three men are oriented towards the center of the stream. Two of the men were found in a position of embrace and what appeared to be a desperate attempt to conserve warmth. It is noted that body parts that have managed to avoid the water are mostly intact but the flesh that was lying in the direct stream of melting snow has to has succumbed to the water's microbes. In order to preserve any evidence on the bodies, Ivanov immediately arranges to have the remaining four bodies recovered from the mountain and brought in for autopsy. Makes sense, okay. right? Yeah. Because we already have a lot of degradation from any of the body parts that are in the water. Mm-hmm. And he knows now that they're exposed to truly the elements, mm-hmm. you know, additional elements that... decomposition is going to happen very quickly. And he also knows they're basically out of leads. Right. So these are his ticket to figure out what's going to happen. Unfortunately, word of the day out love case and the potential for a government cover up has spread throughout the region. When the recovery pilot arrived with the helicopter, he flat out refused to transport the bodies unless they were in quote, zinc lined coffins which were sealed to prevent toxic or biological leakage. Oh, wow. Quote. Okay. <laughs> which, hey, I don't blame him. 
I don't either. I mean, if you think the government, I mean, there's a lot of distrust in the Soviet government, just to start with. I mean, forget even outside of this story, just lots of lots of not great stuff Mm -hmm. happening over there. Citizens in the dark. And he just said, no, I'm not putting I'm not transporting them because at that point they were basically just rolled up in tarpaulin. They weren't even, you know, I mean, again, what do they have out there on this barren mountain that they can put them in? So they, the, and the other five bodies were transported the same way. So Ivanov didn't think it would be a problem, but the pilot said, absolutely not. The infuriated Ivanov who realized that with each hour that passed, important clues would be disappearing, argued with the pilot and his superiors, but no one would budge. To his amazement, zinc-lied coffins were ordered and delivered the following day. Four days after the remaining hikers were found, they were flown off of the mountain. Okay. This is wild. That's wild. Have you ever heard that before? I had not heard that. No, I had not heard that. But it makes total sense. It really, truly does. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't know what happened. You don't know, but we know something happened. We know something happened. First on the examination table was Alexander Kolovatov. The first observation was that he donned many layers of clothing, but still no shoes. He was found to have rigor mortis, liver mortis, and the accompanying discoloration of the skin and organs, but little else was noted. His cause of death was hypothermia. Next for examination was Sasha Zolotaryov. He was found to be in a similar state as Kolovatov. Generously, generous layers of clothing, but no shoes, and his skin and organs showed the same discoloration. It was Zolotaryov's midsection that struck the forensic analysis as unusual. The right side of his chest had sustained serious injury with five fractured ribs resulting in severe hemorrhage. It was concluded that the fractures had been inflicted by a large force while the victim had been alive. So that could have been an avalanche. Possibly. Potentially. Like yeah. if maybe, I mean, I maybe. Know, I'm just thinking what would it hit. It is so bizarre to me that all of these people are found without shoes because here's the thing. I can see them like borrowing each other's shoes. Sure. Or layers of clothing. Like if someone's already passed. Sure. Like borrowing that and using it. But the majority of them are not wearing shoes. So like there's no shoes to borrow. There's no shoes to borrow. They're, that's just so bizarre to me. Like, the no why sh- are all these the, people the no not shoes. having shoes? Yeah, the no shoes to me is like off the charts. It's like, you know, getting suited up one on one. It makes zero sense. There's zero sense. literally no explanation for me so far that you've shared mm-hmm. that explains why these people have no shoes. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I agree. <laughs> Strangely, he was found wearing a camera around his neck. This was interesting as it would have been a second camera, as his first one was found in the tent. Hmm. Yuri Yudin confirmed that he had no idea there was a second camera. It had never been mentioned or shown to the travelers. Unfortunately, the camera was submerged in water for three months and the film was not able to be developed. In his hands were a pencil and a notepad. But according to officials, he must have perished before writing anything. I don't know if I believe that. I was going to say something. I don't know if I. Maybe that's true. I don't know if I believe that, though. 23-year-old Kolya Thibault Brignols was found with similar violent injuries, though this time the fractures were to the head. 
It was concluded that Kolya had died from impressed fracture of skull dome and base with abundant hemorrhage. It was added that the injury had been sustained while the hiker had been alive by, quote, effect of a large force, end quote. So he died from blunt force trauma, not hypothermia like so far everybody else has. Yes, that's right. Okay. The forensic experts examination of Ludmila Dubanina was the most alarming. The 20-year-old's body had sustained massive thoracic damage with internal hemorrhaging, including that of her right heart ventricle, plus fractures to nine of her ribs. Ultimately, what happened, her ribs cracked and punctured her heart, is essentially what that means. Oh, man. Yeah. Most disturbing, however, was in the young woman's mouth. He saw that her tongue was missing. The examination offered no explanation in the report for this detail. So we don't know if it happened post-mortem. We don't know. We just know her tongue was missing. That's all And actually most, I can't remember the scientific name for it, but... Um, it's essentially the, the soft base of your mouth, like under your jaw. Mm -hmm. So the part that your tongue connects to, Uh a lot of that was gone as well. Okay. So maybe could have been an animal or something. It could have. And again, she was in the water. Sure. So certainly that could have led to it as well. Sure. Yeah. I do find it strange that he just said, well, it's just gone, but offered no explanation for it. That is weird. Yeah. I find it strange that these three people found in a different place at a different time died in different manners. Mm-hmm. That's very weird. Yeah. the But they were all together. Yeah. And her, her death was also classified as violent. Right. I assumed. Yeah. Okay. But no explanation was given as to what violent means. Okay. That's kind of left to the imagination. But not was... hypothermia. Uh, not hypothermia, no. And so violent, was it a natural force? Mm-hmm. Was it a human force? Mm-hmm. What does violent mean? Mm. Additionally, the many layers of clothing and caretaking of the bodies with wrapped feet and it seemed to indicate clothing was removed from the ill-dressed bodies and placed on these four. Okay, so that's what I was trying to say earlier. Like, yeah. you know, if... If somebody's already dead, then you take their clothes if you need them. And so that definitely happened. Unfortunately, there were no shoes with which to do so. Okay. Um, but they did use, you know, from from the original, you know, so from that Kravonashenko ex- and Doroshenko, they did remove some of the clothing. That's why uh, the clothes were in shreds. That okay. explains a lot of it. And it explains why they didn't, those previous found didn't necessarily venture out in just their underwear. Okay. Right. And this also explains away for me the idea that has been brought up a lot, which is paradoxical undressing. Yes. In this in this case. Um that never set well with me as these are very experienced hikers. They would know. Right. They would know, okay, no, I'm not actually hot. And and so it never made sense to me that they would just lose their senses and just take off their clothes. Mm -hmm. So this survival tactic makes a lot more sense to me. I agree. I'd heard that. And I do think it's an interesting theory. But again, they were smart enough to know 
you yeah. don't take your clothes off. Yeah. And I guess I should explain paradoxical undressing. Oh, sure, <laughs> like probably. so into this case. <laughs> well, paradoxical undressing is when your brain interprets instri- extreme cold as extreme heat. And so a natural reaction to that is to remove your clothing, even if you're in like sub-zero temperatures. Um, and again, the idea that these very expensive, experienced hikers would succumb to something like that just never held any water with no. me. And I just realized I said smart enough to know. That doesn't mean that people who do take their clothes off in this situation aren't smart. But No, you just mean educated. Edu- they were educated in, in survival techniques. And this is just not something I think they they would have fallen prey to. Correct. That's that is what I was yeah. trying to say. <laughs> but it realized I did not say. We understand you're not trying to insult paradoxical undressers. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just know that these, they had so much training. Sure. It was very unlikely that that would be something that they would, they would be affected by. I agree. Arrangements for the funerals of the four remaining hikers were put under more restrictions than the last. Surprise, surprise. Only the families of the victims were permitted to attend. That's wild. Wild. And why? Why? Oh, it just, no wonder there are so many, so much speculation and the idea of cover-ups and this kind of thing. Whether it's military cover-up, whether these were supernatural creature whatever it is it's just crazy it really is i mean i i don't I, that makes no sense to me yeah and it didn't much to Ivanov either i mean here he was he's like i now after the examination examination of these four bodies i have more questions than i have answers everybody kind of thought these four bodies would have yielded some kind of clues and now they're like died of violence what what is happening right now So grasping at straws, he ordered radiological testing to be done on the hikers' organs and clothing just before their burials. I mean, he literally last minute was like, well, I guess I'll see if this sticks because I don't have anything else to go on. It turned out to be the right call. Oh. A week later, Ivanov learned that sweaters worn by Kolovatov and Layuda contained twice the amount of radiation considered safe for those working with radioactive substances. And because the clothing had been sitting in melting snow and water for days, it was thought the original amount of radiation could have been much higher. It was concluded that, quote, the clothes were contaminated whether with radioactive dust from the atmosphere or by contact with radioactive substances, end quote. That's very interesting. However, these results would have no bearing on the criminal investigation. (laughs) As the day before the results were available, Ivanov bowed to his superiors and closed the investigation effective immediately. What do you think about that? I'm, my mind is blown. Yeah. What? (laughs) Case closed. Before Ivanov shut his casebook forever, he cited the cause of the hikers' deaths as, quote, an unknown compelling force, end quote. I mean, I would say that's accurate, but all right, we're just going to close it. Close it up now. That's right. After realizing they're, they have really high radiation levels. Okay. Case closed. I got all the info I need. Yeah. And, and you know, I really feel for Ivanov in this situation. I really feel like he tried to solve this 
but the people above him did not want him to. I don't get the impression that like he didn't care to find out the truth. But, you know, sometimes sometimes you can only do what you can literally do. And it sounds like he was kept from doing a lot of what he would have liked to. Exactly. Exactly. Now, families of the victims were left with nothing to comfort them on their loss. No answers. But public interest in the case continued to grow over the next 40 years. Like people like us. <laughs> and still today, people are yeah. wondering what happened. Yeah. Forced to respond in 2018, Russia reopened the investigation into the Dyatlov Pass incident. And in July 2020, Russian officials released the findings of their two-year investigation of the case, refusing to consider any criminal activity. And criminal activity, I mean, uh, you know armed men, military involvement, any of those types of things, they found the cause of death of the Dyatlov group to be an avalanche and subsequent natural events. However, they did not give any reason for their findings. In August of 2020, the same department called into question the finding of its own lead investigator. Oh, the case still remains unsolved. Last I heard, it had been ruled an avalanche. That was the last I heard. They did. And then some whistleblowers said, mur, mur. that's that's probably not right. And they've since gone back and, and looked into it. And we're actually at the point I'm going to start talking about theories. Okay. And one of them is the avalanche theory. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting tidbits. All right. I'm that. excited. All right. So the first theory, which we've kind of already covered, was Monzi attack. Sure. And I don't know. I actually hate that there was even a theory. I mean, the Monzi were just so helpful and genuine. And no. Just to me, no. that. Yeah. To me, that holds no weight. Yeah. Also, Halachal Mountain, which it was the kind of like the mountain um, top above where the hikers were found. Monzi tribes don't go there. I mean, again, oh. it's called don't, you know, don't go, don't <laughs> go literally there. It's called don't go there. Yeah. And, and because it's not advantageous to them. So they're a semi nomadic community. I was going to say, what would be the purpose of going there? I exactly. I mean, they're not just going to go there to <laughs> hang out. Right. So there's no reason why they should have been there. Um, the idea that somehow the hikers touched one of their sacred monuments or something doesn't it doesn't hold any water none of the monuments are close and also i can't imagine that these hikers were in any way disrespectful to any part of this as they went through so that just doesn't yeah i, I feel like that's a witch hunt yeah i i think we can take that yeah. off of our table here yes exactly so number two is the avalanche okay because of the slope of where their campsite was it is not an avalanche-prone area. Oh. And the slope, so they consider anything over 30 degrees to be potential for avalanche. This is definitely below 30 degrees. Okay. Not an avalanche-prone area. In fact, there has not been one single avalanche in the area since the Day Out Lab Pass incident. That's compelling. Mm, it absolutely is. That's compelling. Now, let me ask you that. Do you know if people still go hiking here? They do now. Okay. Right after the Dyatlov Pass, the government closed the mm -hmm. trail for a year and a half, I think. Okay. But it has since been reopened. Okay. And actually, most of the documentarians that I follow in the story have gone. Okay. If I was at 
all amenable to cold, Mm -hmm. I would consider going myself because I hear it's surreal, especially when you've studied the case so much and you recognize the landscape. Yes. Um, There's a particular rock pretty close to where it was about a mile away from where their campsite was called Boot Rock. And it's kind of like the only like landscape feature on this kind of barren land. Um, And they used it as uh, a landmark for a lot of the rescue teams and oh, things. They're right. like, meet us at the boot rock. They just call Makes it the sense. boot rock. It looks like a boot. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I've heard some of these documentarians saying when they finally got to walk by like boot rock, you know, how incredible it was. And that's actually where the memorial is. Oh, There's a memorial okay. there to the Diala uh, hikers as well. Okay. Um, but just how kind of surreal that is. These I'm pictures sure. you see over and over and to be there. Yeah. But- um. I was curious because I do know that one of the things that can cause an avalanche is like the setting up of a tent or a camp. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess the hammering of the raw. I mean, I'm clearly no expert or whatever you do, though. I've heard that that can like disturb the ground and cause an avalanche. So I thought, well, if nobody's ever camped there again, maybe. But no, I, I clearly- don't know. I, I don't. Well, it's clearly very inhospitable. So I don't know mm-hmm. that many have like camped there okay but i definitely know there have been a lot of hikers there and there has never been another avalanche okay or right. an avalanche I mean, okay yeah that a, that's compelling that's pretty compelling 40 years yeah and also the fact that ivanov never even considered it to be a possibility the tent is still standing there was still a hat on rustic i don't know it just didn't make sense well and here's the thing that is interesting to me so the people who died first we know the people who died first are the ones who died due to hypothermia. Mm-hmm. The ones who had the grand injuries, which could be caused by potentially an avalanche, they are the ones that died later. That mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. If everybody ran and fled from this campsite because there was an avalanche, why did the people, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. That to and, me and, make how, sense. and how were these three gravely injured, but the others weren't right you know i mean it just didn't the avalanche theory has never set well with me um after the russians released their findings uh, a mr berkland who is the director of the u.s forest services national avalanche center which i did not even know existed Mm. (laughs) said quote we believe that the avalanche hypothesis cannot be completely ruled out but that it is not the most likely scenario. While it may have been remotely possible, we would suggest that it is highly improbable, end quote. I feel like I fall into that camp. Like, I can't say it's completely impossible. Like, it's not ridiculous to me, but it doesn't seem like that's what happened. And I think there would just be more evidence. Right. There's too many things that make me say, but wait, the tent's standing. But wait. Well, and again, how did they find footprints around and how did they like it just right. doesn't. Right. And it just doesn't. Sit I would right. imagine that if somebody was injured in an avalanche, like there would be evidence of that later when you found that person. Right. I would assume. Right. Right. Yeah. Number three, high winds. The Diatla Pass is certainly known for high winds, known as catabatic winds. So these are essentially mountain winds that can reach hurricane force. Um F2s, F3s kind of winds. And the idea was that maybe one or two of the hikers, maybe one of the ones that had on the felt booties, mm-hmm. had stepped out to maybe relieve themselves, went to the bathroom. They got swept by, by the wind 
And then all the other hikers ran out to go and help them. Why would you not put on shoes? And why would you cut yourself out of the tent? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the theory of the wind causing problems makes sense to me, but I don't think that answers all our questions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Number four, animal attack. Some have suspected that a bear or a Yeti (laughs) may have been responsible for the hikers fleeing the tent. However, there were no animal tracks found anywhere. They were all people tracks. I mean, without shoes, granted, but no animal attacks, attacks and bears were hibernating during this period. So it would be very unlikely to have any kind of animal attack during this time of year. Well, and there were not injuries that reflected an animal attack. There were some that indicated an animal was present, um, missing pieces of flesh. But these were more like birds and things like that that had happened post-mortem. Like scavenger type. Exactly. Scavenger type animals. Mm -hmm. So there definitely were signs of animal activity. So I think this is worth exploring. But to ultimately say that's what contributed to their deaths, I think is very unlikely. Right. And you would expect to see scavenger type animals in an event like that. You would expect that. Yes. Yes. Number five, armed men. Now, this theory continues to circulate and circulate. (laughs) This theory continues to circulate and for good reason. Um, Several of the hikers had unexplained bruises and scratches on their hands that could have been consistent with defensive wounds. I mean, they could also have been just trying to cut your way out of a tent and scratching on like tree branches and snow and ice and those kinds of things. Hiking for days. Exactly. Exactly. But with the, quote, violent nature of the, you know, several of the injuries, you do have to think maybe there was another individual involved. As it turns out, one of Stalin's gulags or this forced labor camp that Mm -hmm. we kind of alluded to earlier, where, I mean, they're mostly political prisoners, but they certainly are regular prisoners, too. Um, One of the biggest camps was located in Ivdel. Could someone have maybe followed the hikers? And Mm -hmm. if so, though, for what reason? Because ultimately, while there were some pretty severe injuries, there was nothing missing from the campsite. Right. They probably didn't have anything really of value. Um, I would say if it was like, just thinking of all aspects, if it was like these men who hadn't seen women in a while. Right. But they're going to. I mean, there's like five men to the two women or seven men to the two women. So. Well, and actually that that is a really that's really incredible that you thought about that, because in the autopsies, Mm -hmm. um, I read the autopsy reports. Mm -hmm. Both women were found out to have been virgins. And that's only notable because it means neither of them were sexually assaulted, which you would expect in a situation like this. I mean, just to be frank, men that haven't seen women in a long time, what would there be? What would be the motivation? There's nothing of value right. to steal, but maybe the women had somehow, you know, attracted their attention. Right. So the fact that there was no assault yeah. on the women, mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I don't know. The escaped prisoner thing just didn't. There's make just a no lot motive. There's, There's just no, no motive. motive. And also, they never found additional sets of footprints. It was just the nine. So means there's probably not somebody else there right um now this does also kind of gray area into military you know so this would just be 
like some kind of prisoner or crazy person, Mm -hmm. something like that. Military theory is a whole other one that we'll get to. Number six, which I find pretty compelling, are the rocket tests or orbs. Okay. The fire orbs in the sky. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Ivanov wasn't able to say during his investigation that he believed in the orbs of February 1959. But in a 1990 interview, he revealed, quote, I can't tell for sure whether those orbs were weapons or not, but I'm certain that they were directly related to the death of the hikers, end quote. Okay, so he absolutely believed that they were they played a part in it. And, you know, honestly, I think because he probably knows a lot more than we do, because remember, he like, well, of course, you remember you told me, but like, (laughs) (laughs) wait, what? (laughs) You know, he he went, he got called out and then he came back and suddenly he wasn't talking about this anymore and that anymore. So, like, I assume he knew more than the rest of us do. Or maybe they just shut him down without telling him any. True. But from that, maybe he deduced that, mm, you know what, there's something to this. So I would say that whatever he's thinking, like, I'd pay attention to what he thinks. Absolutely. That's why I give it validity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, I don't know. In my mind, I'm probably like, well, it's meteorites, it's comets, it's, you know, whatever. But the fact that he thinks there's something to them makes me think there's something to it. Because I don't think he would would intentionally be kind of misleading people. Right. Because even when he shut down the case, he just said, no, I'm just not going to talk about it. He didn't say that wasn't it. Right. He just said, I'm not talking about it. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Yeah. Um. Now, again, what were they, though? This is the deal. Okay, they contributed to it. But what was it? Right. Again, extraterrestrials? Was it missile launches? Was it secret weapons testing? I don't know. The plot thickens with the government cover-up theory. Sure. Right? I mean, the fact that they don't want the victims to be seen. No, that's not true. There were two of the hikers that were allowed to have open casket. I can't remember which two they were, but all the other ones were closed casket, um, which I also find very interesting. And it's the government required that. Yes. That is so bizarre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if it is a government cover-up, what were they worried about? Like, were the hikers killed because they knew something? Did a rocket or weapons testing, did it go wrong? And then they had to be taken out. Um, also, this kind of does fit with the presence of the radiation. Yes, yes. Because that piece is very strange. Um, and again, the low profile funerals and things. Um, to me, this avenue kind of like holds a lot of weight yeah we're getting into something that's actually real yeah right yeah um giving this theory more validity is again that lev Ivanov thought this is a possibility also yuri yudin believes that the military was behind the deaths Mm. Mm -hmm. even boris yeltsin believed in a conspiracy listen to this when he's made president of russia after the fall of the ussr he promised to research the Dyatlov Pass incident. This is how, I mean, it's so amazing that this has really, I mean, public outcry of saying, no, we want answers. We want answers. We want answers. So the fact that, I mean, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and their first president, they say, can you figure out what happened to the Dyatlov Pass incident? That's crazy. Right? That's crazy. 
So he uses his political power to try to find information about the events in 1959, specifically in February. The closest missile launch site to the Dyatlov Pass was in Kazakhstan, which is south of where the Dyatlov hikers were. And it's called the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Yeltsin asked about rocket launches from Baikonur in February of 1959. According to Yeltsin, there were no such launches. It's hard to know how much Yeltsin actually looked into this. Like maybe he looked into it and said, yeah, I'm not going to open that can of worms. I can't blame him. I can't either. Uh, but it does go to show you that the majority of Russians truly believe the military is involved. Honestly, so far, that's kind of where I'm leaning. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to rule it out. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a second about the radiation, though. OK, because there's a couple different ways to explain the radiation. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's important to note. OK, so could it have fallen? Could it have happened from something falling out of the air? Could it have happened from, you know, some kind of like rubbing up against something? Yes. However, I did a little more digging. As it turns out, the Soviets were performing nuclear tests on the islands of Novia Zemlya, which is approximately 850 miles to the north of where the hikers were located. And radiation could have found its way to the north through the atmosphere and like the water cycle. So maybe it was literally the water they were laying in that the the radiation could have transferred through. So while the original thought was they probably had more radiation that's now been diluted, the idea could be it's it has radiation because it was in the water. Okay. So that, that makes sense. It's possible. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Another thing that I find much more compelling is that if you look at the what was actually contaminated, it was the most contaminated was a sweater that was worn by Leuda. It was believed to be owned by Kravishenko, though. So it was his sweater, but she was wearing it. And remember, he was the one that was found under the cedar tree. Okay. So he was the one that had minimal clothing, definitely could have taken the sweater, put it on them, you know, put it on her after they took it off of him, after he was deceased. Right. Makes right? sense. Yes. So let's look at him. Less her, more him, since it was his sweater. As it turns out, he at one time worked at the ill-fated nuclear plant called Kushchim, which only a year and a half earlier suffered a full-scale meltdown. Okay. The Kushchim disaster was at the time the world's greatest nuclear disaster, and still even now it's number three in the world for okay. one of the greatest nuclear disasters. Now, you've probably never heard of it. Never. <laughs> I had never heard of it. Do you know why we've never heard of it? The Soviets completely conspired to just wipe it out of history. I was gonna, that was going to be my guess as to why we've never heard of it. Never heard of it. They didn't even tell the people in the surrounding villages. Oh. People started just dying sure. from radiation poisoning. And eventually they were like, you know, we'll just move you out of this area. Didn't tell them a thing. Wow. Yeah. Now, if Kremenchenko had worked here, it would not shock me at all if he worked in conditions that were inappropriate for radioactive <laughs> elements. I And so it is very reasonable that he picked up radiation on the sweater from his days working at the nuclear plant. 
That makes a lot of sense, actually. The fact that it was especially on this sweater and given his, his yeah, that that checks for me. That to me answers that question. Yeah. Now Kolovatov also had contaminated pieces of clothing, and incredibly, he too worked at a secret nuclear facility in Moscow. Okay. The Soviets were wild. Oh yeah. Wild. <laughs> and so it it stands to reason that these two things, you know, and so either he could have Kolovatov could have picked up radiation when he was working at that Moscow plant. And even there's some speculation that some of the contaminated items from Kushtin were transported to Moscow to try to clean up. So he could have been exposed to it. You know, it's still the Kushtin disaster, but he's exposed to it in a different area. Okay. Or at some point in the trip, he put on Kravonashenko's sweater over his own, which transferred some of the radiation. That makes sense, too. Yeah. I think any of these are possibilities. So, you know, I think I think these things make a lot more sense than blaming it on a UFO. <laughs> you know, I would say I would say yes. Uh, so th- with that group of bodies that were found, two of the men were in embrace. Was it those two those men? Those that were in the ravine. Was it those two? Um, like, no. could they have even transferred to that? Okay, no. No. Um, and again, remember, Layuta was the one actually wearing it. Well, correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, she was in the... the she was in that grouping. In, the, in but, that grouping. But, okay. Correct. Correct. The last one is infrasound. Now, now you know already. <laughs> I kind of like this theory. I like this theory, too. Mm-hmm. I like this theory a lot. So, infrasound is the opposite of ultrasound. It occurs below the threshold of human hearing at 20 hertz, where ultrasound frequencies are well above hearing at the threshold of 20,000 hertz. Now, what does that actually mean? <laughs> Please tell me. That's a scientific definition. But essentially what it means is there are very low sound frequencies, which can cause the eardrum to vibrate um, the hair cells of the inner ear. And the effect of this is, although you may not be here to be able to hear the sound, like the sound itself might not be audible, the excited hair cells in the inner ear send impulses to the brain telling you you are hearing something. And depending on where that frequency is and how sensitive you are to it, it really can mess up your brain. Your brain really doesn't know how to interpret these signals. So the disconnect between the silence and the brain receiving signals from the ear, really disruptive. Symptoms of ultra, of infrasound could include body chills, strange feelings of uneasiness, sorrow, nervousness, nervousness, revulsion, and fear. Also, accelerated heartbeat and or sudden memory loss or the sudden memory of an emotional loss. Mm. Oh, oh, yes. it's awful. Awful, really awful. Extreme symptoms include acute disorientation, dizziness, and nausea. The source may be man-made, such as a cooling or ventilation system, or this has been reported a lot in wind farms where you have wind turbines going. They can also occur in nature as byproducts of earthquakes, landslides, meteors, storms, and tornadoes. Based on the shape of the slope, and the speed of the wind the night the Dyatlov Pass incident occurred, it is very likely that infrasound played a role. Hikers could have become disoriented and feeling an intense sense of dread left the tent, finding that they had no way to make it back to shelter. 
That night, the hikers made camp under Halachal Mountain. Halachal Mountain, which translates into Dead Mountain in Monzi, under the right weather conditions, could have absolutely produced infrasound. I personally find this to be the most likely scenario, even though, I mean, it's incredible that science has cut up to the point where we can even understand what this is. Um, it is also the conclusion of the Dead Mountain author, Donnie Eichhardt, and he summed it up at the very end of his book. He did a recreation of what the hiker's final moments were, and it explains a lot of these little details that on the surface don't really line up, but I'm just so impressed by him and his deep dive into this. Um, having, again, come to my own conclusion that I think this is what happens, I'd like happened, I'd like to read you what his basically recreation of the events. Yes, please. All right. The following is not only based on our opinion, but it's based on diary entries, weather reports, physical evidence, and expert scientific opinion. So these are all factual things brought together. Now, again, a recreation, but it's very likely this is probably what happened. Okay. After a grueling day of hiking, nine comrades entered their newly erected tent. They yank off their damp boots and shed their jackets, spreading them out strategically to dry. Outside, the wind is picking up speed, falling somewhere between a whistle and a howl. By 9 p.m., the hikers' combined body heat has begun to warm the tent a little. They settle in, and a late dinner of ham and biscuits are passed around and eagerly devoured. Georgie pulls off his watch and hands it to Kolya, who has been tasked with the morning wake-up call. Kolya has his own watch, but the mechanics of wind-up watches are known to be unreliable in sub-zero weather. Better to be safe with a backup watch than to risk sleeping through half the morning. For the past hour, the wind has been picking up speed as it moves over the dome of the mountains. But most alarming is its volume. The hikers are used to the haunting cry of mountain gales, but the wind's terrifying roar is closer to that of a freight train tearing down the hill past the tents, or rather a series of trains. Igor and his friends know nothing of this weather phenomenon, and when their bodies begin to respond to it, they have no earthly idea what is happening to them. Their heads begin to pound, as if they've all been struck with the same terrible migraine and their chests vibrate strangely. This initial feeling of indeterminate anxiety rapidly worsens until it manifests as full-blown excruciating terror. By the time the wind outside has reached its infrasonic threshold, the hikers are no longer just anxious about the wind. A deeper fear has set in as the effects of the infrasonic frequencies have temporarily brought them out of their rational minds, and now they are operating under a more primal instinct of flight response. All the hikers want to do is stop the intense discomfort and get away from it. It's as if the tent is a swiftly sinking ship and the hikers must abandon it at all cost, even at the risk of drowning. Sasha and Kolya undo the latches on the tent just enough to allow them to push themselves out of the flaps at the bottom. Someone at the other end grabs a knife and hacks at the back of the tent and tears through the canvas. The opening is just big enough for the hikers to push through, and one by one they exit the tent and fly into the darkness. It is 25 degrees below zero. The hikers are insufficiently dressed and in their stockinged feet. They are looking only for relief from the torment that has hijacked their bodies, but in, a, but in fleeing the tent, 
they are only escaping from one pain into another. Though the seven men and two women cannot see it, the wind is tearing off the mountain in twin files of vortices that are in effect F2 tornadoes coming off the top of the mountain, creating not only an audible roar, but an infrasonic frequency that has been wreaking havoc on the hikers' minds. The group is separated early. The moon hasn't yet risen, and the night is pitch black. Kolya and Sasha, who are nearest the entrance, have brought their flashlights, but in the turmoil, Sasha drops his in the snow. The combination of exiting the tent at different times and the complete darkness results in the hikers dividing into smaller groups. Besides this, they can barely hear each other. By the time the hikers have cleared the mountain and are nearing the tree line, the psychotrophic effects of the ultrasound begin to soften. They are slowly gaining possession of rational thought, and one by one, the nine become overwhelmed by a completely different sort of disorientation. It begins to occur to some of them what they have done. As the cold pierces their feet, a deep horror sets in. They are, in fact, roughly 300 yards away from the tent and divided in separate groups of four, three, and two. Layuda, Kolya, Sasha, and Kolovatov. Zina, Rustik, and Igor. And Georgi and Doroshenko. The hikers likely realized at this point that fighting the wind all the way back up the slope in hopes of finding the tent in the darkness would be impossible. Their only hope is to keep going with the wind at their backs deeper into the trees and focus on surviving until sunrise. Georgie and Doroshenko follow a path to the south that leads them across the frozen Lavza River towards the woods. But they encounter deep snow in one of the river tributaries and are obstructed from entering the thicker tree cover, so they move along the stream bed until they arrive at a large cedar tree. Here, they stop for the night, not knowing just how far they have strayed from the others or from camp. They try to make a fire. Doroshenko manages to climb the cedar tree and breaks off small dry twigs for kindling, tossing them down to Georgie. When there are no more twigs, Doroshenko begins to saw the thick branches with his pocket knife. But because hypothermia is taking its toll on coordination, he loses his balance and falls on top of the branches and onto the ground below. He injures himself and likely gets the wind knocked out of him. But this is nothing compared to the unbearable cold that is paralyzing both men. One of the men grabs a match sewn into their clothing, and they both collapse next to the modest fire they have made. Meanwhile, Kolya, Leuda, Sasha, and Kolovatov head to the opposite direction, just north of Georgie and Doroshenko. Kolya injures himself at some point, probably on the rocks hiding just below the snow, causing him to lose his ability to walk. He also loses his flashlight in the process, and now the four must go blindly through the darkness. Sasha and Kolovatov carry the injured Kolya over the snow in the general direction of trees, but without warning, they encounter a 24-foot precipice and tumble into the rock-lined ravine below. Kola, Layuda, and Sasha hit the rocks with massive force, all three sustaining grave chest injuries while Kolya's skull is dashed on the rocks. Somehow, Kolovatov has managed to avoid seriously injuring himself on impact, perhaps because Kolya cushioned his fall. His only concern now is to save the lives of his friends. Perhaps he is able to communicate with them as they are losing consciousness. In order to keep them warm, he spreads out a bed of fir twigs for them to lie on. At some point, Kalavatov noticed a glowing coming from the direction of which they came. The hopes of reuniting with the others and recruiting their help in saving those in the ravine is the only thing that compels his painfully frozen feet over 450 feet of snow in the direction of the flame. 
When he reaches the cedar tree, he finds Georgie and Doroshenko lying unconscious near an already smoldering fire. Unfortunately, they have succumbed to what is called afterdrop, a phenomenon whereby sudden reintroduction to heat will temporarily cause core body temperature to drop. The sudden warmth from the fire had a strong tranquilizing effect on the two men, resulting in them sleeping into deep unconsciousness. As their fire dwindled, hypothermia overtook both of them. Kolovatov's only thought now is getting back to the ravine to help the three who have fallen. He pulls out his pocket knife and begins to cut away the warmest of Georgie and Doroshenko's clothing, leaving the remaining scraps and shreds. He then moves his friend's body side by side in the most respectful arrangement he can manage and starts back to the ravine. By the time he returns, shredded sweaters and pants and arms, Layuda, Kolya, and Sasha are just barely alive. He uses part of the sweater to wrap Layuda's exposed feet, but it is coming too late to save her. She loses consciousness and will eventually die of her internal injuries. Kolya, who has been knocked unconscious, will succumb to brain hemorrhage. Only Sasha is still alive, and in a last effort to get him to the protection of the woods, Kolovatov lifts the injured veteran, but he is unable to get as far as the edge of the ravine. Unable to fight the cold and his exhaustion any longer, Kolovatov collapses next to his friend. They both close their eyes, clutching each other as they fall into a peaceful unconsciousness. Igor, Rustik, and Zina have remained closest to the tent, but become separated from one another. Igor settles into a tree line, where he suffers the final stages of hypothermia. Even if he had been carrying matches with him, the surrounding birches would have made poor firewood. He is cold and alone, without so much as the company of a friend, who are less than 200 yards away. He collapses next to a small birch, gripping its branches until his final breath. Rustic falls on some stones, fracturing his skull. He loses consciousness, but ultimately succumbs to the cold. Zena also injures herself on a stone, breaking her nose. With blood running down her face, she attempts to crawl back up the slope in the direction of the tent, but she loses muscle strength, collapses, and dies of hypothermia. By the time the waning crescent moon rises at 3 a.m., radiating blue behind the cloud cover, all nine hikers are motionless. They are frozen in various positions of surrender and intense struggle. In savage winter conditions and over a vast stretch of ground, all nine fought for their own and one another's lives with their bravery and endurance worthy of a grade three hiker. It is a distinction they will never earn, but one that each of them so rightly deserved. A mountain pass in the area was later named Diatla Pass in memory of the group. A prominent rock outcrop in the area now serves as a memorial to the group. Each is listed by name and photograph. Yuri Yudin was quoted as saying, If I could ask God just one question, it would be what really happened to my friends that night. Upon his death, Yuri Yudin's last wishes were to be laid to rest with his friends. <laughs> Cynthia and I are both teary. <laughs> the 10 hikers are now all memorialized together in the northern Ural Mountains, where they fought so bravely. Wow. <laughs> we really are, y'all. We really are both teary. <laughs> as soon as you said worthy of grade three hikers, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> well, okay. I feel like when you've been on these journey where you feel like you know them and know some of their ambition and how hard they fought for it, it's just so hard that this this was the end. 
and they were clearly also loved and loved each other. That's the thing that, like, I really, f- they were selfless. Like, yeah. they, they, no man left behind. Yeah. And um, I'm going to protect, I may be injured or hurt or dying or all of the above, and I'm going to um, still do what I can to save my friend, which is not always the case. And especially for 20-somethings, 20-something-year-olds. I totally so, feel like that. Um, yeah. These are great people. These yeah. are really great people. And while, I mean, I, I do believe this is probably what happened, and I'm so grateful for Donnie Eckhart from the Dead Mountain for putting this in such a poetic <laughs> way. I cannot take credit for this writing. I do believe this is what happened, but mm-hmm. this is totally from, you know, his book. Um, but... We still don't know for sure. We don't, but I'll tell you, um, it kind of wraps it up and makes it all make sense. Those questions that you know, you're like, yeah, but why this and why that? Well, you know what? This this really kind of answers all those questions. And again, this is somebody's opinion about what they think may have happened based on all of the information. But yeah, I it it I already liked this theory. Yes, and having it like played out like this laid out for me i'm like yeah okay yeah yeah i think that's what happened yeah wow stephanie i have not heard so much of this you really did a, an amazing job bringing stuff this is a highly covered case and you brought information that i've never heard before bringing it yeah <laughs> awesome so when are we planning our russia trip um <laughs> we can get online as soon as we're done recording and start looking into it i i would go with you absolutely yeah and i don't know if i could actually hike up a mountain at this point but i would definitely like to visit some of the cities that they were in and um you know just some of the places that they stopped and some of the places where they 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 did good they did good things they did do good things they they probably like those children that they they visited yeah you know um and how compassionate they were with these woodcutters giving them books and things i mean how wonderful yeah and they left this this legacy mm-hmm. you know of kindness and caring and and not to mention i mean just uh tenacity and courage too yes they were young but they they made a big impact. They did much more with their lives than many people do they that did. are twice their age. Yeah. So that is our story of the Outlaw Pass incident. And thank you all for indulging me so much in this. Um, it was quite a treat to share. Yeah, it was beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. And thank you for listening with us. And don't forget to join us next week as we bring you more thrills and chills. And, and- also. Next week begins Oktoberfest. We got some fun surprises for Oktoberfest. Absolutely. You cannot miss it. Don't miss it. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
This has been a Just Us Gals production with artwork by Justice Holmes and music by Ryan Creep.